0: Really glad to be back to Bible study, live streamed on a Wednesday evening. And I'm sure you've all had a, a good break, holiday over Christmas time. And I do trust it's been a real blessing to you just reflecting on the advent of Jesus coming. That uh, great, compassionate step. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And those of us who have responded, Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So welcome once again. And uh, I am going to continue this uh, evening in our study uh, in the book of James, uh, picking up a particular passage, uh, just the next passage we had left off at the end of chapter 4. And so picking up at the beginning of of chapter 5. So let's pray together and uh, let's really ask the Lord to continue to use his word that his spirit constantly work in us using the word to pierce our hearts, to transform us into the likeness, the moral likeness of Jesus. And so, our Father, we do pray once again, thank you for a new year, for a new season, new opportunities, Lord, to grow in grace, but also to serve you in gospel ministry and the unfolding of your redemptive purposes and so as we turn again to the scripture tonight I do pray that uh, this passage would uh, Lord stir within our hearts Uh, help us Lord always to be examining our hearts uh, in the light of your word help us to have the courage to look into the mirror of your word and to respond appropriately and to be encouraged if if that is necessary to be challenged to repent Uh, whatever the case may be. And so for the usefulness of your word, we thank you tonight. To commend myself to you as well, uh, coming to you, just praying that uh, this responsibility of teaching is great. And Lord, I don't want to take it lightly. And so praying for your gracious hand of mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. So we do come to this passage tonight in in James chapter 5, and I do want to remind you that uh, in the entire book of James, we do see that James does not mince his words. Uh, He writes the letter right from the very beginning and to the end, and uh, James's style, the particular style led by the Holy Spirit and through the personality of James, is one of a direct confrontation. Uh, There's no... Uh, how to win friends and influence people kind of attitude or approach in James. So this section that we come to tonight is particularly confrontational and in some people's opinion quite harsh and some people would even say unkind and insensitive. But I do want us to consider this passage in the light of uh, what we know and understand from the book of Proverbs, there, there's a point that we need to clarify, that we need to understand when we face difficult things, when difficult issues are raised in the Bible that that uh, stare us in the face, that, that, that point fingers, that, that, that require us to examine our hearts. And so the, the confrontation tonight is to rich people, uh, we do need to understand uh, the definition of rich people, and that's something you can talk about and think about in, in your own group. But I do at least want to say at this point, this does not refer simply to people who live in massive mansions, but many, most people in our context would be considered to be rich compared to the many, many people who live from hand to mouth in the context, not of our, only of our country but even in the context of of the world. So the clarity I I refer to is something that uh, we must think about in our relationships, in the church, in our relationships with each other, and sometimes more importantly, even the relationships that leaders have with members in the church. And the clarity is uh, what is mentioned in Proverbs chapter 27, Verse 5 and 6. Now listen to these words again. You they are known to you. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. And then continued in verse 6: Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And so the point I'm wanting to make in clarity as we approach this difficult passage this evening is to see that, let's let's consider a worst-case scenario. Surely it makes sense. It is better to confront someone honestly so as to warn them, warn them particularly against blundering into some kind of irreversible tragedy. And the tragedy that we need to be considering in the bigger scheme, in the eternal scheme of things, is like steam rolling full steam ahead into an eternal lostness in hell. So now having said that, faithful of the wounds of a friend. I do want to turn to, to the passage. And uh, it is James chapter 5 verses 1 to 6. And I've entitled the study tonight, A Scary Warning. And uh, I'm going to elaborate on the phrase wicked rich as we go along as well. But follow with me in your Bible chapter 5. And uh, this is what James says. Come now you rich. which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And let's pray that the Lord's blessing would certainly be added to the reading of his word as we seek to unfold And just explain it uh, here this evening. I want to start with uh, a comment by a commentator by the name of R. Johnson. And uh, he has a commentary on James. And he has this to say regarding this particular passage. These six verses that I've just read. He says, with all the holy fire of the Old Testament prophet, James pronounces the dire warning of impending wrath against the wicked rich, so he he categorizes uh, the target uh, of this particular challenge to what he entitles the wicked rich, and the reason he does that is because the passage does not condemn riches or wealth in general, not at all, but he does communicate the truth that those who are rich, those who have an abundance of resources, will face. The very real danger expressed in a particular prayer that again we read in the book of Proverbs, and I want to just refer to this prayer in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, where it is written, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Now, this is the point that he makes about riches, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. And so, yes, I do want to clarify right up front that the Bible does not condemn uh, wealth, but it does speak to the abuse and the misuse of wealth or riches. As Paul wrote to Timothy, again, a, a confrontational passage, a passage of great warning. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not just that; it's the love of money, the obsession with money. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so, as is the case for every believer, the challenge is always to be a good steward of whatever God would entrust into your hands. It is also true to say, and it is also possible for us to see and understand that within legitimate biblical framework, within a legitimate biblical ethic, it is possible to work hard and become wealthy. It is possible to maintain that wealth, to even expand that wealth. But our passage makes it very clear that that kind of wealth ought not to be abused it must not be made an instrument of oppression. It must not be misused. We ought to be good stewards of all that God gives to us. I do need to say that I am tonight leaning quite heavily on the commentary by uh, Gordon Keddy, Gordon J. Keddy uh, on James, uh, just to try and understand and analyze uh, this uh, passage. So James chapter 5 verse 1 to 6 can be divided just as an introduction still into two different parts, two main parts. There is in the first three verses what uh, Keddie calls the punishment. I'm going to call it something else in a minute. But simply what James is doing, he's declaring punishment on the wicked rich. And he does so showing the ultimate worthlessness of wealth that is accumulated and used only for selfish. Purposes, and we'll have a look at that as the first point, and then we'll move on to a second point. Uh, Katie calls it the crime verses four to six, where he details three characteristic sins of the greedy and the covetous uh, rich class of people. But let me move on, and I have called in my first uh, point uh, the outcome. What what is the ultimate outcome for the wicked rich? So who? Is James directing this message to? There were those uh, in the constituency that he was addressing, some wealthy uh, Jews, and uh, he was concerned about the way that they were conducting, conducting themselves toward others, particularly those who were poorer and who had less. And our concern tonight must also be, yes, if, if that had application to them then, it also has application to us yet today in the world that we live in as well. And so in any age, there are those people, there will be those people, any one of us are tempted to become obsessed with the accumulation and acquisition and the retention of riches. So by addressing the punishment, and that's what he does in the first instance that awaits the wicked rich, James is being a faithful friend. Don't forget that. If you're listening to this and you have vast wealth accumulated, listen to these words. I'm not seeking to attack. I'm not seeking to criticize. I'm seeking to convey the word of God as a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Immediately, this passage, when I looked at it uh, in preparation for this presentation, immediately the thought came to me. Uh, the passage that Jesus taught of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that 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 story, that incident, that tragic story, uh, where in Luke chapter sixteen you can read the passage. I'm not going to go into detail. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, and 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 he ends up apart, away from. In that context, the bosom of Abraham, apart from the presence of God, and 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 he suffers and and he pleads. The destiny of the rich man had him pleading for relief, and and that's that's the the sense in in in, in uh, the the topic that we have before us tonight. Uh, he's pleading for relief. That didn't achieve anything. It was to no avail because at that particular point in time, his his destiny, apart from the presence of God, apart from the favorable presence of God, was set in stone. There was a great chasm fixed between he and Lazarus, the poor man, a situation that was irreversible. So how then does James very practically um, speak of this punishment, the outcome of Of the wicked rich. He first goes to a description that I will call, They will weep and they will wail. The first verse Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. There is an outcome, there is a prospect, there's a a destiny that awaits him. Now, very interesting over here. I don't like to throw around uh, the, the, the original Greek language, but in this particular instance, it is useful. The two words, and I won't even quote them, but they are two similar words and and, and the word for weep and wail. And they are what we would describe in English, examples of onomatopoeia. And what is that? If you remember your English grammar, it is a word. The sound of each word imitates the action it describes. So let me give you some English examples. I jotted some down here. Pop! Immediately I say that, you, you hear the sound or crack, or splat, or ding-dong, or hiss. These are all words that, that are, are used to describe a particular sound. Now, the sound of these words, and I quote Avia, describes so that we can hear the ululating rhythms of traditional Middle Eastern morning cries. Now, I can't do the ululating, but just use your imagination for a minute. James is showing them that this is going to be extremely unpleasant, it's going to be painful, it's going to be a situation of tremendous grief, and and, and there will be this ululating. And so the, the intention, the thrust of using onomatopoeia is, is that it serves to intensify the sense of damnation that awaits the wicked rich. And so they ought to feel as as, as they read this letter, as I preach this. This, this message tonight, as I seek to teach it, the, the, the prospect of the just judgment of God is unpleasant, it's undesirable, it's something you never want to experience. Not to forget, the words are also familiar to us from the teaching of Jesus. Remember in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be Weeping, you see that? Unpleasantness, sadness, weeping and wailing, gnashing of teeth. And so it is true in a temporal sense. I don't know if you've come across anybody who has lost a tremendous amount of wealth, either in a crash of a stock market or a bad investment or or through robbery It is true that any person who loses an accumulated treasure in this life uh, is saddened and there's a weeping and there's a gut-wrenching response. But the point here is not a temporal sense of loss. It's the eternal sense of loss. The, The obvious implication is the eternal nature of the warning. The justice of God will be served to every one of us, including the rich. No one will escape giving an account to God. And those who have made wealth, mammon, their God, their weights, horrific. How can we even describe it? Can we even speculate how horrible, how harsh, how undesirable, how unpleasant it will be, suffering apart from the gracious and merciful presence of God? That's number one. Number two, the outcome of this, uh, Lifestyle and approach uh, is they will see their accumulated wealth ultimately as having no eternal value. Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. It also reminds me of a passage back in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. All these riches, anything that you accumulate in this world will pass away. The temporary benefits will evaporate before the wrath of God. Let me quote Kiddie again, Gordon Keddy. He says, If gold is all, if gold is your all in this life, you will certainly go before the judgment seat with nothing except your sins and the terrible prospect of endless retribution. Isn't it true that our earthly treasures are in a state, doesn't matter what you've got, of irreversible decay, even from the moment of origin or acquisition? If you buy a new car, it deteriorates. If, if anything in your house, if you have a computer, it gets old, your house continually needs maintenance and, and everything is decaying. And, 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 and not only is it decaying, it, it has no, absolutely no eternal value. You don't take anything with you. The bottom line is we take nothing with us when we die. And that which we have left, it will be spent, it will be wasted, Or it will be accumulated by somebody else simply to be spent in turn by someone else or wasted by somebody else. Number three, the role, I've called this the role of the deteriorating hoarding goods. The third verse tells us that your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The point is that the corrosion of wealth, the deterioration of it, in turn, is a testimony to the sinfulness of piling up wealth. Now, what, what is James getting at over here? You see, hoarding. Think about what, what hoarding actually defines or describes. Hoarding, by definition, of un- is, 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 is that uh, it's an accumulation of unused, the stuff we have in our garage, the stuff we have stored in the storeroom, it's the, it's the unused accumulation of wealth. And the point is their rotting is testimony to them being kept from fruitful use. Let me give you an example. You have a cupboard and you have a cupboard with a whole pile of jackets. You never use them. They're simply in the cupboard and they are out of fashion and they become moth-eaten what is that? It's it's a testimony to their unfruitfulness, because having more than one jacket, having multiple jackets, jackets that are never used, those jackets could have been given to someone else and put to good use. Do you see? Do you see the point he's making over here? Thomas Menton, the old Puritan. Let me quote him. He says he puts it this way: it, it these these hoarded goods not only witness are not only witness but executioner, because the matter of our sin shall in hell become the matter of our punishment. The decay of these earthbound objects of unholy desire is a foretaste of the eternal corruption of the sinner in hell. The lost will be endlessly burned up by the reflection on the things which they were so obsessed with in the world. But what's he say? In other words, the loss of their gods of gold and silver of their luxurious excess, will be an everlasting reminder of their guilt and fuel for unceasing, unrepentant remorse. Regret, but no repentance. He makes a comment about the last days, just to remind you that most often uh, when the Bible refers to the last days, speaking about the period between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And so the point here really is, why lay up treasures when there is going to be an end to the days, be an end to the world as we know it, when Jesus returns? And when he returns in judgment, a judgment that will determine an eternal destiny of every single Man and woman that has lived on this earth. What point is there in piling up treasure that will make no contribution to your eternal destiny? Well, we move on now to the second part of these verses and we're going to look at some of the specific nature. Yeah, yes, yeah, some specific examples, very easy to identify and ask yourself, are you guilty? Are you actively uh busy doing some of these things that James describes. So we move on and then we're going to speak about the sins of the wicked rich. He identifies, as I said earlier on, three manifestations of the obsession with material wealth. It it plays out, it manifests. One can see it in the exercise of decision making and daily living. Number one, robbing the worker of wages. Verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. We need to get something very, very clear and straight. God requires the honest and fair compensation of employees. In the law, back in the Old Testament, the wages of the hired man not even to be kept from him for one night. Let me just read to you Deuteronomy 24, verse 14. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners or in your land within your towns. 24, verse 15. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. For he is poor and he needs it. Counts on it. Lest he cry against you to the Lord and be guilty of sin. This is a bit of a, a sensitive issue in our South African context. We have in South Africa, I think I heard on the news or on the radio yesterday, 22 million people in this country on social grants. The point is that we have many, many people who are in desperate need of employment. And so those who have work to offer can be tempted to exploit people who are desperate for little. We also have in this country many, again more than a million—I'm not sure how many million—foreign national people, many of those who have uh, who are undocumented and therefore have no recourse in the normal channels of law and can be taken advantage of to the benefit of the employer. And so we need to examine ourselves as Christian, professing Christian men and women who are employing men and women in this country. Are we taking advantage of them? Are we exploiting their desperation to our own benefit? Their loss is to the employer's gain. The laborer getting poorer, living hand to mouth, taking whatever he or she can get, and the employer getting richer, languishing in self-indulgence. That's the first sin. The second one is that of luxurious living. Verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Again, just reminding us of the rich man and Lazarus. And, 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 and the wicked rich... In the heart of the wicked, rich man or woman, there is a commitment to self-enrichment and self-indulgent at any cost. On the back of the poorest of the poor. At every level of society, the sinful nature of leaders, of those in authority, regardless of the political model, whether it's capitalism or socialism or Marxism or communism. There are people who are in authority that look after number one. That's the the sinful nature that will lead them to loot, even at the expense of the poorest of poor. So men and women in positions of authority, not all, not all, there are exceptions at different levels of society, will feather their own nests beyond what is reasonable and right and fair. And the point that James is making, dear friends, this should not be true of those who are born again of the Spirit of God. It is sin to exploit and loot and impoverish others, even country and city or church, for self-gain in luxury living. And then there's the third manifestation of sin. It's the murdering of the, the innocent. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous, person, He does not resist you. Now we do need to understand, we need to just affirm that Jesus is the only innocent and righteous person. He was condemned and He did not resist. But the point of the passage and the sentence is that it is a sin when any of God's people, any of God's people, any person in fact, uh, perish unjustly at the hands of rich oppressors. When any Christian person perishes at the hands of a rich oppressor, there are those who disregard the way they destroy the lives of people under them. They will be held accountable in God's court of justice. I was so disappointed as a younger person when I was about 17 or 18 years of age. I'd had a Sunday school teacher uh, who taught me, a well-known person and uh, moved on from the particular church that I was attending and became a very successful businessman and along the way employed my father. Treated my father like dirt, chasing him out of uh, a factory uh, like he was an animal. And, and, and it, it just didn't make sense. Uh, Sunday school teacher, a leader in the Christian community, but, and, and not only my father, a staff member uh, after staff member, employer after employer, spoke of this man's callous and, and cruel action towards employer. And, and I remember as a 17, 18-year-old, uh, my dad being subjected to, to this kind of treatment, and, and, and was so tempted, so tempted to challenge that person, but, but then remembering, ultimately, God will hold each one accountable in the way that we treat those who are subject to us. Well, let me conclude. You see, the ultimate question posed by James: "Where is your treasure? Where, where is your treasure? Where, where are you focused? Where is your heart? Sadly, and and, and the danger for any one of us is unholy attachment to riches is a powerful trap. It's a powerful snare for any man or woman, even professing Christians. And I want to close with an illustration that I found by uh, uh, one of the uh, church fathers, Ambrose of Milan. He lived in 339 AD to 397. You know what he did? He once sold his church's gold and silver to purchase the release of some prisoners. For this he was severely criticized within the church. And so Ambrose responded. And this is what he said. I think there's a lesson that we can learn. He who sent out the apostles without gold also gathered churches without gold. The church has gold not to keep, but to pay out and to relieve the That's why it's central, we need to be careful that we don't simply accumulate money for the sake of accumulation of money. The money God entrusts to us, the resources he entrusts to us, we need to use for the benefit of kingdom ministry. Ambrose continued, he said, what need to keep, what helps not. That statement is so challenging. Let me read it again. What need to keep, what helps not. Will the Lord not say, why have you allowed so many needy to die of hunger? Surely you had gold to minister sustenance. And then Ambrose concludes, I haven't read the entire statement to you, but this is how he concludes. It would be better for you to preserve the vessels of living men than of metal. And so to conclude finally that well-known passage, huge challenge to any of us, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, where Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is will be also. May Jesus the treasure that he gives in salvation of who he is and what he's done be the treasure of your and my heart. And so we pray, Father, search our hearts, lead us. If there are adjustments that we need to make in wages that we pay, in attitudes that we have, pray that you would help us have the courage, Lord to do that which is right and honoring and pleasing to you. And so part us with your blessing, go with us, and may your word continue to uh, dwell within us. In Jesus' name, amen. I do have one final slide, and it it is the questions. Again, uh, I think uh, a passage that we ought to reflect on, and I would encourage you to do so. Uh, Again, those questions are there just for a moment. If you want to take a photograph with your phone, Uh, You can use those either in group discussion or personal reflection. And then just to say, uh, great to be uh, doing this once again. God bless you and be with you. Looking forward as uh, God would will in these coming days ahead.